entered the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietley. Coming up first on this week's episode of the Powercast is Paul Kimball. He's a documentary filmmaker and also a UFO investigator. And you'll never guess who his uncle is. That's coming up first this week on the Powercast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. So, Paul, as an avid reader of your blog, The Other Side of Truth, I'm always interested in what you've, what you've got to say about the UFO field in general. I, I did notice that you have some interesting comments about the reported UFO sighting at O'Hare Airport in Chicago in early November. What's your take on this episode? My take on the episode is that everybody should step back and take some time, wait for a proper investigation to be done, whether if you're pro-UFO, wait for the UFO people, Dr. Richard Haynes is currently conducting a very quiet investigation that you don't hear reported in the news, and that's the proper way to do it. Wait to hear as well from the government. Wait to hear from the meteorologists. If they're going to say it's a weather phenomenon, then ask them, instead of just saying, no, it can't possibly be a weather phenomenon, it had to be aliens from Zeta Reticuli, ask them to show why it was a weather phenomenon. What weather phenomenon was it? Was it clouds? How did it all work? You know, ask them for a specific explanation and then attack that explanation if you don't buy it or if it doesn't make sense sense. But what we're seeing, unfortunately, in my view, is what usually happens in the UFO world where somebody, in this case it's Peter Davenport, has gone to the media and it's become this media cause celeb. And then you're listening to radio shows and reading interviews where people like Peter, and I've seen him say this, start talking about government conspiracies and cover-ups. And then the meme starts. And pretty soon, it won't matter what was sitting over O'Hare Airport, if anything. Some people will see it as being UFOs and it'll confirm their belief that way. Other people will simply dismiss it, and it will confirm their beliefs that way. And then those of us that sit in the center, who would actually like to know what happened, will be stuck because the investigation will be so compromised by that point, much like Roswell became compromised at some point, that you'll never probably find out to everyone's satisfaction what the real answer was. And in that sense, I heard somebody say that it's going to reinvigorate the UFO field. It might, but you know, just in the same way that it's the UFO field has been going for almost the last 50 or 60 years where nothing ever really gets accomplished. My final comment should be you should never be conducting your investigation through the media, no matter what you're doing. It could be whether you're a police officer or a lawyer, it doesn't matter. Uh, and that seems to be what's happening. You end up tainting witness pools. You end up getting people coming forward that maybe just heard it on the news. And you also, frankly, might drive people away who might otherwise come forward if they know that there's a chance that they might wind up on television or the radio or being talked about. And so I just think it's been handled poorly, almost from the get-go, and certainly when you start as what, you know, the media didn't find out about this story. It was taken to the media, as I understand it, by Peter Davenport, and I just think that's a mistake. It's a mistake that uh, ufologists and ufology have made before. Um, so that's my take on it. What was it? I don't know, but it was only two months ago. There are cases sitting in the Project Blue Book files from 50 years ago that remain unexplained, and frankly, they're better cases than this one just based on, on the evidence and, and the witness testimony. So, and they remained unexplained. So that's 50 years later. So mm -hmm. there's a very good chance that 50 years from now we might not know what the O'Hare case was either. You're in the Powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Begetney. Paul Kimball, documentary filmmaker and UFO investigator, joins us today. And we're talking to start with this O'Hare incident. So you think here that the 
the UFO researchers shouldn't be going to the press, but where should they publicize any information, just in their private publications, online, what? Well, you shouldn't publicize any information, frankly, until you've had it. I mean, this would be the ideal world, and people like Kevin Randall and other very good researchers like Brad Sparks have been talking about things like this for years. Ideally, you wouldn't publish anything until it's been peer-reviewed. I remember Kevin, for instance, did an article on the Thomas Mantell case a couple of years ago, put it up on a very well-known UFO list and said, look, let's do what the closest thing you can get in ufology, which is peer review on this list. Let go, guys. Let let me have it, good or bad. And there might have been a couple of comments, but most people were talking about other things, and they generally ignored Kevin's article. It's still sitting there, and I haven't seen very many comments on it. Now, maybe Kevin got a few privately. I think he did. But again, I asked Kevin about this, and he said, look, there wasn't a great deal of response to this. And that's what should be happening, though. People go out, they do the research, they put the thing together, then they put it out there for other people to look at. What you're seeing in the O'Hare case, though, is an ongoing investigation by anybody's admission where they're still talking to witnesses and they're still checking out all these various things. And yet there they are on various radio shows, some of them, Peter Davenport would be the prime example, on radio shows and in the media and in Newsweek talking about it and going on about not how this is an ongoing investigation or we don't know, but it's worth looking at, but saying things like government cover-up and conspiracy right from the get-go. That's what you're getting. I just don't think that's particularly productive, especially if you want to engage serious people outside the UFO community in the conversation. That's not the way to go about it. It has never worked in the past, and it's not going to work this time. Well, any sort of extreme position is always going to be problematic. Of course, in the UFO field, it sometimes seems like we have nothing but extreme positions. When we talk about peer review, if it's the group of people that I'm thinking of that typically look at this stuff, I mean, they don't seem to be able to agree on what time to have lunch, much <laughs> less, uh, right. less looking at anything like this. The, the thing about Davenport, I do agree that uh, I heard some of his uh, radio appearances, and they were a little extreme. Of course, he did have on one show one of the actual witnesses call in, and it seemed like a pretty reasonable guy, who, among other things, indicated that he was pretty sure that one of the United employees had actually taken a couple of photos of this thing on a cell phone camera, which, you know, all of us, I think, would be dying to see what those pictures look like. But isn't it true that the FAA came out immediately and said, well, no, this is just basically a weather anomaly. This is not uh, anything serious. I mean, it, it seems like the reaction from the, the United States federal government was immediate and absolute and that there was nothing to look at. I mean, do you think that that perhaps made Devonport say, okay, this is a conspiracy because it looked like one? No, I don't think it looks like a conspiracy. I think people in the UFO community have to have a better understanding of how government works, why government works the way they do. The fact that, you know, there is not this monolithic entity known as the government. There are many, many, many different divisions of the government, and even mm -hmm. within a particular division like the FAA, there are subdivisions and individuals, too. I don't know. Like, you know, I'm the first to tell you, I'm not an expert on the O'Hare case. I sort of become a semi-expert on the way it's being presented to the public, which is more what I do anyway. I deal with the media and the public. In terms of the actual research, all I would tell people is, look, there's Richard Haynes is out there. Wait until he's done. I understand that from people within the UFO community, Haynes is moving very quietly, and he's got a list of more witnesses than we think, or at least the media have reported. I think they've reported mm. somewhere between 10 and 15. I think Haynes is looking at literally dozens of people who've come forward. But that's happening behind the 
scenes, and you don't see really Richard Haynes running out there and wanting to be interviewed by Newsweek or paranormal radio shows or that sort of thing and talking about it as it's ongoing. To me, that would be the same thing as having a Crown prosecutor or defense attorney walking out and talking about an ongoing criminal case. I understand why defense attorneys do that sometimes, because sometimes it can help muddy the waters and work to their advantage. And frankly, defense attorneys, their job basically is to get their clients off. There's no question about it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. That's the way the system's worked up. You have to have people do that. But to see Crown prosecutors in Canada, what you folks would call district attorneys, go out and do that kind of thing is, is wholly irresponsible. And it's bad when the government does it and when the FAA comes out with a knee-jerk response or when United comes out with perhaps a knee-jerk response, then maybe that's wrong. But that doesn't mean you should be going on the internet radio or on the real radio. I don't even know if there's any difference between the two anymore. And screaming cover-up and conspiracy because I can tell you what happens. People start tuning out, literally. All they don't like the paranoid approach. Exactly. All those people who are not in the very, very narrow little confines of the UFO community will say, okay, fine, this might have been an interesting story, but now we've at these guys talking about X-Files conspiracy sort of stuff. And I honestly believe from talking to just friends of mine who have no real interest in UFOs per se, but are willing to sit down and talk with you if you can sort of maintain a rational conversation with them about it, i.e. keep talk out about conspiracies and stuff, but just point to particular cases. That interests people. I think the conspiracy stuff and the cover-up angle, that interests a certain group of people, but at that point all you're doing is talking to your uh, what the politicians would say, talking to your base, and you're not expanding that base at all. What you're doing is just sort of reaffirming their beliefs. You're also reaffirming the beliefs, by the way, of the other base, which is the fundamentalist debunker base, as I call it. People who will say, no, 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 no matter what. And they'll just have their beliefs confirmed that you're all nuts. Eventually, what will happen is you have two sides that start yelling at each other, and everybody, and it is an awful large group in the middle, who just go, well, what's the point? Welcome to the UFO field. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFOMAGA. Or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com, and they can also call one 888 U-F-O-M-A-G-A, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. 
And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me tell our listeners, you're in the Powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we have a very level-headed guest today, Paul Kimball, documentary filmmaker, and we want to emphasize that first, and he also follows the UFO mystery, the UFO field, the UFO free-for-all, sandbox. sandbox. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The thing that's happened with the internet is that there's more information available, but it doesn't mean better information. And now you have these freely available message boards, and we have a very nice message boards here at the Powercast. At times, it gets a little wild and woolly, I think we have a lot of good exchanges, but some people just get beside themselves, and it's the same thing. You get a few people who hang out there, and they yell at each other. That's all they do. They yell at each other. In the older days, you yelled at each other in various magazines. You had feuds. Some of those feuds were fake feuds, and guess what? How much more about UFOs do we know today than we did 50 years ago? And the answer may be zero. I don't know. Some people will disagree with me, but I find that we really haven't learned an awful lot. I agree. In fact, I often like to use the example in terms of these feuds within ufology, if you remember, there was a Star Trek episode from the original series where two guys, one a police officer and one a, uh, for lack of a better word, I suppose a terrorist uh, or freedom fighter, depending on your point of view, showed up in the Enterprise. And one of them, Loki, was black on one side, white on the other side of his face. Oh, yeah. The other one was white on the other side of his face. You know, they were sort of polar opposites of each other. But that was it. That was the only thing that separated them. And as the episode went along, you realized these guys had been fighting literally for thousands of years throughout the galaxy. And they finally get back to their home planet and realize their entire home planet has been destroyed by this useless conflict. Well, there's ufology for you, uh, often. You've got two sides, even within the sort of people that believe UFOs are extraterrestrial critters. You've got little subgroups within those, that group, that are fighting amongst themselves, too. Even within a subgroup of that subgroup, like Roswell, you had massive feuds just on Roswell between people who believe something crashed at Roswell. It was alien. But by the way, it crashed over here. No, it didn't. It crashed over here. That witness is bogus. This witness is bogus. Your witness is bogus. You're bogus. You know, on and on it goes. And it, it just comes across to the general public as being childish, frankly. Having said that, there are good researchers out there. There always have been. But you can number them probably on two hands and one or two feet if you add up the toes and fingers. I mean, you're talking about maybe one or two dozen people that are good, quality, hardworking researchers that are doing good work and maintain a level, reasonably objective approach to it. The rest of it, frankly, is noise. And the trick is, whether you're on the Internet or whether you're listening to Internet radio or radio or television even, is to try and filter the noise out from all the other stuff that you're hearing. That can be, frankly, in the UFO field, perhaps more difficult than it can be in other areas. But, you know, the rest of the world is like that, too. You hear stuff, politics. You'll hear people yelling at each other and fighting and stuff. And the trick is to try and filter out from that noise a coherent message that you might want to listen to. It reminds me of elections. <laughs> We're always complaining. I believe in the better nature of human nature. I believe that if you have politicians in front of people, these people, they want to hear policies. Maybe they don't want to read the entire book, but they at least want to know what you're going to do. They don't just want to hear you say, George Bush is evil or, or Al Gore is stupid or whatever. They, they actually want to hear what you have to say. I'd like to believe that. 
that anyway. Maybe not everybody, but hopefully most people do. I think the same thing is true in, in the UFO field. Those people that are genuinely interested in it and that can, you know, take two and two and add them up to four. If you have the people that take two and two and you get, they get five, there's not much you can do for them. But the rest of them that can actually add and subtract and multiply. Those folks, I think they're craving serious discussion about cases and, and that sort of thing. And unfortunately, they don't very often get it, whether through documentaries or on the radio or on the internet or even in books, frankly, anymore, it, because it's become so commercialized and, and so much of this yelling kind of stuff. And you're even, as I said, starting to see that with the O'Hare case, where within two months of the incident happening, it used to take years. I mean, Roswell lay dormant for 30 years. Now, within two months, all of a sudden, you've got people talking about cover-up and conspiracy. And I heard a radio show the other night uh, where somebody got on and, and basically saying that this is the greatest crime since, well, I don't know, ever, I suppose, since they oh. nailed Christ to the cross or something. I don't know, whatever your greatest crime would be. This is the, the worst thing in human history. And I'm thinking, what? You know, it's, a, it's, it's a pretty a, far a, from the worst thing in human history. Yeah, I mean, but yeah. That, that seems to be the nature of all discussion these days, whether you're talking politics or religion or the social status of humans or the, the economic status of countries. Everything is about polarization. It's almost like people can't appreciate or process subtleties. They seem to need to have everything pre-digested for them, and, and people don't want to work through to the answer. They want the answer given to them, and that's very frustrating. I mean, I'd like to think that you're right, Paul, that people will do the right thing, but I think as we look through history, it just seems like that's not the case. I agree. I think people don't need to be constantly encouraged and reminded to do the right thing, and I know this is going to sound very ominous, but think the right way. I don't mean that in an Orwellian sense. I mean that in just think. You know, the right way yeah. to think is to think. <laughs> And unfortunately, you read me on the Internet, especially on message boards, you'll read a lot of people saying, the government is telling us what to do. The government is telling us what to think. These people are telling us what to think. No, even if they are, don't blame them. Blame yourself. And, and don't just sit there and say that everybody else are sheeple. That's one of the words that people use that just drives me nuts, sheeple. I mean, it's a very clever little word, and, and it's easy to throw out, and then you don't you figure you don't have to say anything else. Oh, okay, I said it. I guess everyone knows what I mean. <laughs> We're so clever. Yeah. Don't blame the people if, if if you think people are telling you what to think. Just think for yourself and continue to write. But there seems to be an almost anti-think going on, where if the government tells you something or if a figure in authority tells you something, the knee-jerk response for these people who criticize all these other sheeple, their knee-jerk response is to sheeple down, as they say, and sort of say, well, no, I don't believe it. Well, let me tell you something. Knee-jerk disbelief is just as bad as knee-jerk belief. And that goes for fundamentalist debunkers in a different context, too. You know, if somebody says there's no conspiracy, don't just go, yes, of course there is a conspiracy. Well, actually, you know, sit down and look at it. Otherwise, you're just as guilty of doing what you're criticizing all these other people are doing. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com.
You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. And we have a very level-headed gentleman who's trying to do a reality check of the UFO field and possibly society in general, maybe the Jerry Springer generation, sad to say. And his name is Paul Kimball. He's a documentary filmmaker with a big interest in UFOs. Okay, speaking of the documentary films, what is your next production that we'd like to know about? I'm just finishing up one now for Space, which is Canada's, the equivalent of our sci-fi channel, and TV New Zealand as well has already uh, pre-licensed it, and we have a distributor in the UK that will hopefully sell it throughout the rest of the world, called Best Evidence Top 10 UFO Cases. And uh, what I did was I went and I polled a wide number of those ufologists that I believe are respectable and reasonable and objective and have done a lot of good work in the field, and I asked them to give me, each of them, their top 10 list, or as Dick Hall said to me, 10 of his best, because Dick said, I can't give you just, you know, like 10, but I'll give you 10 of the best. I said, fine, fair enough. And then we averaged them together using a point system so that the case, if you had a list in the number 10 case would get one point, and then the number one case would get 10, if you see what I mean. And then the cases with the most points formed our top 10 list. And those are the 10 cases that we're going to be bringing forward in this film. It's only an hour long, so as one or two people within the UFO community, Jerry Clark, for instance, refused to participate because he uh, even gave me a list because he said, basically, I don't see any merit in the film. And I've talked at length before about how I think Jerry's dead wrong, and I think that's part of the problem with ufology is some of these older folks don't understand how the modern media system works. But I always made the point that this film is not designed to solve the UFO phenomenon, the UFO mystery. What it's designed to do is get people interested in the phenomenon and perhaps in some of these cases, most of which most people have never heard of, and they probably should. If you're interested in UFO phenomenon, for instance, you should know about Kelly Johnson's sighting in 1953. There, there's a scoop. That's one of the cases on the list. A lot of people within ufology don't know about Kelly Johnson's sighting in 1953. Forget about people outside ufology. And it's an interesting thing. I, I read an interview with Peter Davenport. I don't want to pick on Peter. Let me just say, Peter does a lot of good work with New Fork. He has some very good ideas about passive radar and things that could help the serious study of the UFO phenomenon. So I don't mean to pick on Peter, just this one instance with O'Hare. But he gave an interview with uh, Newsweek magazine that I read. And I think one of the questions was, you know, something along the lines of, well, this happen often. And if I had been Peter Davenport, instead of just saying, this happens all the time, you know, we've had thousands of cases uh, all throughout the years. I might have actually, and you should know you're going to get that question, said, well, here's one case that you've never heard of. And I might have picked the Kelly Johnson case that involves the world's foremost aeronautical engineer and designer of the 20th century. He built the U-2 among all sorts of other planes, plus separately and independent from him, observing this phenomenon at the same time, two of his top test pilots who were flying the plane over uh, the Santa Barbara Channel, and one of the world's leading aerodynamicists, who was also on the plane as well. I mean, those are, forget about O'Hare, if you want to look at qualitative witnesses, those are the creme de la creme of witnesses, especially as, at the time, Kelly Johnson was designing the U-2, and he knew what was up in the sky. And the Air Force tried to explain this away, by the way, as a lenticular cloud. So, you know, if you believe that the O'Hare explanation of weather phenomenon is goofy, it wouldn't be the first time that the government has tried to use a very sort of goofy weather explanation to explain away UFO sighting. So there's this great case from 1953. Very few people, even within ufology, know about it. And frankly, if it was me and you were doing interviews on the radio or the television, well, here I am, it would be one of the first cases I would mention and say, look, Google Kelly Johnson, UFO 1953, and then read the reports. What did they see? Well, who knows? It remains unidentified to this day. Well, but, but what 
what, what was the report? I mean, what did they report? Well, Johnson, what makes cases like this interesting, because they were coming at it from different angles, Johnson was at his home in Agora, standing on his back patio, basically, and the plane was flying from a different angle, so you can triangulate, and Brad Sparks has, uh, has done a lot of research on this, and, you know, you can get the sort of exact measurements and stuff, and it, it, it's, it's almost like a perfect storm of cases, given the quality of witnesses and, and what they saw. They saw, Johnson described it as a, a flying wing-shaped object, uh, roughly, as I recall, 200 feet in diameter, that hovered out over the Santa Barbara Channel and then took off, speaking of O'Hare, straight up through the sky. And he was tracking it. He had his wife, because Kelly Johnson was a very bright guy, he had his wife go in while he maintained the sighting on the object, go in and get his binoculars, which had, I believe they were eight-powered binoculars. And he followed the sighting, once he had those, with his binoculars. And he actually, you know, got a pretty good look at this thing. And he said, look, I'm convinced, his report that he filed with the Air Force, and remember, he, at the time, he was designing airplanes for the Air Force. Probably he had questions about whether he should even file a report. He was unsure whether he should because he didn't want to damage the commercial relationship that Lockheed and Skunk Works had with the Air Force. Oh, no, don't hire this guy. He's nuts. But he filed it anyway because he was encouraged to do so by a general. And he said, look, I'm convinced there are flying objects out there, and I've seen one. And this is what this was. It was not a weather phenomenon. It was an object. It moved in a way that nothing we have can move. And it went straight up, you know, at a certain speed. And I can't remember off the top of my head what his calculation of speed was, right up into outer space. And his pilots basically said, yeah, the same thing. We saw the same thing at the same time from a different angle. And that's a very interesting case that's never been explained to anyone's satisfaction. It certainly wasn't a lenticular cloud. I mean, I think you can almost state that uh, Kelly Johnson and his pilots would know what a lenticular cloud looks like, especially as the pilots flew towards the object. And then they observed the object flying up into space. Are there any examples, Paul, of cases that you cover in this documentary where there is any sort of compelling video evidence that you're able to present? No. That's one of the really interesting things about the UFO phenomenon is, frankly, there isn't a lot of good video out there. Then again, we're, we're relatively recent in terms of the video age. There is one photographic case on the documentary. It's one of the classic photograph cases, the McMinnville, Oregon case, the Trent photographs from 1950. Oh, gosh, now I've given away two of the cases. Um, <laughs> and, and David, it would be interesting. I know you've analyzed other photos, alleged UFO mm -hmm. photos. It would be interesting if you haven't done it to see what your take on the McMinnville photos are, because the great sort of debunking project, you always hear ufologists decry the Condon Committee report. But the University of Colorado, if you actually look at the report itself, forget Condon's overarching report, but look at the data, look at the investigations. The University of Colorado investigators couldn't explain the McMinnville case. In fact, William Hartman, who was the astronomer who looked into it and did a very thorough analysis in the late 1960s, said, you know, this is one of those cases we can't explain. Like, we don't know what it is, but it gives every indication of being, I paraphrase here, some sort of structured craft. Fine. Bruce McAbee since then, Brad Sparks and others have done similar investigations, similar analyses, and have still been unable, you know, Brad's a skeptic. He sits there in our film and he says, as a skeptic, this is one of the cases that I find very difficult to rationalize because here we have something that by all appearances appears to be a structured craft, and at that time, in that place, doing what it was supposedly doing, the only logical conclusion, I think, you could come to is it's not one of ours. And that's, I think, what makes it a good case is that it's been consistently investigated and researched by people who know what they're doing, and they can't explain it in prosaic terms. And they're convinced, as much as you can be convinced, that the photos are not hoped for various mm -hmm. technical reasons that, again, David could probably explain a lot better than I can, but things like triangulation, stereoscopic pictures, and all that sort of stuff. And it's brought out in our documentary. You have to have Brad or Bruce McAbee on to talk about the exact specifics. It's not my area of expertise. 
again, it's a very interesting case, and it shows that there are good UFO photos out there, perhaps not as many as you would think or you would like. But again, the problem is there's so much not good UFO photos or videos out there that sometimes you lose sight of the good ones that are there. So you'll get all sorts of stuff being sent up from Mexico, for instance, through um, somebody like Jaime Massan, and you know, you just watch it and you go, Ugh, good grief. And then you think, well, why aren't people talking about the McMinnville photos? And then you go, well, yeah, you know, it was 50, what is it, 56 years ago now. True. If you happen to be alive 56 years ago, that might seem old hat. But if you're a 20-year-old kid who's never heard about it, I mean, it's this thing in ufology. People assume that everybody knows everything. And the truth is 99% of the people on this planet don't know anything about the UFO phenomenon. They don't know the history. They don't know the cases. And that's what you should be doing. If you're serious about it, you should be educating people about these old cases, these really good ones. And these things are not worthless. But there, there's this thing in the human spirit, I guess, says the only thing that matters is today. And the only thing that matters is us. And we need to see new cases. Well, that would be nice. But why spend your time focusing on new cases that are not very good when you've got lots of cases from the past over a very prolonged period of years that have been thoroughly investigated over a prolonged period of years, have stood the test of time. Those are the cases that you should be looking at. And in 10 years from now, maybe people will look back on the hair case and say, well, that was thoroughly investigated and we still don't know what it is. This is my training as a historian. There is something called perspective. And sometimes you do need the perspective of a few years to sort of understand what it is that might have happened. And I think that's the mistake that we make in clamoring for all these new cases and stuff. I think in 10 years, they'll still be doing that. The difference is that I'll be on a radio show saying, well, there was this great case from 2006. <laughs> Don't forget about it. You know, and It'll be this one, by the way. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www dot f-a-t-e-m-a-g dot com what are you waiting for your fate awaits you're in the paracast with gene steinberg and david biedney you never know what's going to happen next And this one is called The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany. We're talking to Paul Kimball, documentary filmmaker and UFO investigator. And we're talking about the fact that you can't really analyze a UFO case with instant gratification. Maybe that's the problem with our society, Paul, is well, yeah, that we all want instant gratification. Now, and now, now. Give it to me now. I want it now. I want it free. I want it free and I want it now. That's right. Especially, and, well, with the Internet. Look what the Internet has done. The problem in just discussing things like photographic evidence, of course, is that at this point, most of what we have access to is over the Internet. We have highly compressed JPEG files that are relatively small in size, and it's impossible to do any kind of real analysis with these things. If we try to get a hold of original film or original prints, it becomes next to impossible, Paul. I, right now, I'm doing some investigation into one of the most incredible UFO photos.
photos I've seen, which was supposedly taken in Canaima National Park in Venezuela in 1990. A structured craft in daylight casting a beam down that's extremely visible. This thing looks totally real. It's got, you know, the proper atmospheric density affecting it, everything. But in trying to track down the original source of this photograph, I've had a hell of a time. It's next to impossible. When we talk about, you know, serious analysis of photographic evidence, uh, it's real difficult to do. And I'm hoping that one of the cases you cover in your documentary, probably, to my mind, one of the most compelling photographic cases of all time, being the Trindade Island episode in Brazil, where you, where you had photographs that were impeccable. You had witness testimony, whole crew of a, of a Navy ship that saw this thing. And um, the, the analysis on the photographs pretty much indicates this thing was a real structured craft flying above this island. There's no question about it. But we have so few cases like that in the history of this phenomenon that, you know, to try to get a hold of real photographic evidence, it, it's very difficult. Yeah, there's. I, I tried explaining to this to somebody who uh, pointed me to some photos that they thought were just the cat's meow. And I said, famous European case, can't really call the name exactly but i uh, i said to him well you know the my guys who are experts you know photographers dops and stuff they'll say these things look fake but they also tell me they cannot possibly tell that one way or another without seeing the original negatives and right. in fact all we have are these jpegs as you say and well of course the original negatives don't exist they all um, went missing or something the interesting thing is if you get people who tell you that something these have to be real and then you say well okay where are the originals and if they say well we can't show you the originals well then move on whether they're real or not it doesn't matter because there's no way to properly analyze them that applies to photographs that applies to video that applies frankly as far as I'm concerned, to documents. There are so many problems with the Majestic 12 documents, but there's the biggest one. You can't actually look at the originals, with one exception, the Cutler Twining memo that they found in the National Archives. But the way they found it is so problematic as to beg your belief. You know, you need to take stuff like that and say, look, leave it aside. Let's go look at the stuff that we can look at, that we do know is real, photographs, documents, whatever. And those are the things we're going to concentrate on. It's the very nature of the best evidence rule. There's a reason they call it the best evidence, and that's what ufology should have been looking at for the last 55 or 60 years, and sometimes they have, and some people have, but then there's an awful lot of other people, seemingly the ones that get the most play in the media, that have been looking at other things, and that's unfortunate because there is, you know, why does it interest me? Because it's a mystery, and I like mysteries, and it could just as easily be a historical mystery, or, you know, I like reading books about explorers in the 18th century, too, um, because they were looking for mysteries as well, or at least new frontiers of knowledge. And the UFO phenomenon presents us with the opportunity, at least, to examine a mystery and these new frontiers of knowledge. Now, are they aliens or crypto-terrestrials, as my friend Mac Tonys would say, or ultra-terrestrials? I don't know. They might all be able to be explained prosaically, the null hypothesis, weather phenomenon, misidentification, secret aircraft, and that's fine. But it's still a mystery, and that intrigues people. To me, the real problem is people are not presenting the UFO phenomenon as a mystery. Most people present it as a fetic complete. It is aliens. It is nothing. It is whatever. Yeah. And instead what they should be saying is, there's a reason why Stephen King's one of the best-selling authors of all time. It's not that he says, hey, this book, I'm going to tell you what the answer to 
the book is, at the beginning, well, nobody's going to read it. <laughs> he says, it's a mystery, and you've got to work your way through all the various plot twists until you get to the end. The thing about the UFO phenomenon is, it's like a Stephen King book that still hasn't had the conclusion written to it. You're only halfway through it, and you need to keep reading. And I don't know, maybe in, in my lifetime, we might never get the answer. It's possible. But again, it's like, it's like you guys talk about the instant gratification society, where we have to have an answer today. And that's not the way it used to be. It used to be that you would take a longer-term approach to things and say, you know what, we might not find the answer in our lifetime, but the journey is worth taking because the next generation might find it or the generation after that. But all knowledge is built on a base of knowledge from those who came before. It doesn't just appear today. And I think that's what the UFO community, the serious ones, need to really take to heart. And for the non-serious ones, I would say to the serious ones, the time has come to just start ignoring them and let them do what they do. And they're not harming anybody, so fine. Let them do their thing. But don't reference them. Don't don't talk about them. Sometimes I don't always take my advice, but you see something that is so egregious, you can't resist. But by and large, I started out a couple of years ago in my blog talking a lot more about things like exopolitics than I do today, simply because what's the point of talking about them? They, they don't really impinge on the serious study of the UFO phenomenon. And I, I realized after talking to people that outside the very narrow community of UFO enthusiasts, and I don't use that word in a pejorative sense, I mean the people that sort of follow the UFO phenomenon from a day-to-day -day basis. Outside that community, nobody on this planet knows what the term exopolitics means. So, you know, why why give them any more free publicity if you think it's all loopy, as I do? So, I just decided to stop giving them that kind of publicity generally. And I think that's probably a good rule of thumb. And, and I've noticed that other people like Kevin Randall and others like that, who had also been arguing and debating with these people about the merits of exopolitics, have kind of stopped doing it because, frankly, we said what we can say. You know, Philip Corso was a fraud. Here's all the reasons why we think he was a fraud. There's not much more you can say after that. Otherwise, you're just continually arguing. So it was said, those kinds of things need to be said, I suppose, just to get it on the record. But then people, you know, again, human nature, you have faith in it. You trust that people will go look up both sides and then come to a reasoned conclusion based on the evidence available. Want to hear from you? If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Dana. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to documentary filmmaker and very level-headed UFO investigator Paul Kimball. Paul, one thing we notice sometimes is that you have these red herrings that come up over the years. Contactees, weird documents, whatever. Weird cases that turn out not to be so. We expose them as not being true. And guess what happens then? You know what happens then? Well, unfortunately... It's alive. Yeah, they come back. They, they exactly. kill these things. Yeah. Why? Well, there's a whole bunch mm -hmm. of things for that. I mean, the contactee movement never died. It just went, you know, George Adamski died, but it just went into hibernation for a while. It's back. It's called exopolitics. That's what exopolitics is. Stephen Greer, Michael Sala, they are an updated version, throw in some more conspiracy stuff, but basically they're an updated version of the contactee movement, by which I mean exactly what I say. The contactee movement was bad and 
you know, harmless but bad. And exit politics, it's, they're saying the exact same thing. Documents the same way. The original MJ-12 documents come out. That's not enough. Suddenly, Tim Cooper's flooding the market with hundreds and thousands of documents, which are even more bogus than the, than the, the original ones. And so, yeah, the stuff keeps coming back and back. But I think that's because there's always going to be a segment of the UFO population that's drawn to that kind of stuff. And you need to talk to a psychologist about why they're drawn to that kind of stuff. It's, you know, there, there are probably psychological, and I'm not meaning to say that these people are crazy, but some people are drawn to sort of outlandish stories and they want to believe. And to me, they're the same kind of people who show up at a Tim Hortons or Canada's equivalent to a Dunkin' Donuts, show up at a donut shop, shall we say, when they read a, a quirky media report that says that uh, Jesus's face has appeared in a donut or something, or, you know, they go to a restaurant because the Virgin Mary's face has appeared on a piece of toast. Those people exist. You mean it hasn't? Yeah, no, sorry. I, oh, as far as I know, you've as I know, totally upset my belief system here. Let me yeah. go and commit suicide. I'll see you later. Sorry Bye. about that, fellas. I mean, if, in the worst case scenario, those kind of things lead to cults and they lead to things like the Heaven's Gate tragedy. That's the worst case scenario, but those are so rare as to be the exceptions that prove the general rule. But, you know, not going that far, there's still a group of people that would never take that leap, but they still exist in a world that is more fantasy than reality. And that's fine. It's just, you know, you shouldn't spend too much time dealing with those folks unless they start impinging on your world and start taking away credibility from what you're trying to do. And then you have to sort of take a brief moment or maybe not so brief moment to at least counter what they're saying, leave it there. It's almost like a military campaign. You know, you leave it behind you, you circle the enemy fort and you just keep on going. And if anybody shows up, you know, the enemy fort's been isolated and you just, you come back and deal with it some other day. And I think that's probably the best the best way to deal with it. There's also no question, absolutely no question, that in terms of documents, especially some of these have been put out by the military, by the United States government as disinformation or misinformation. But I don't think uh, there's really any evidence that that's been done because of UFOs. I think it's probably been done to cover up more terrestrial, mundane things that they're doing. Um, and the Paul Benowitz case is a perfect example. If folks haven't read Greg Bishop's book, Project Beta, they should. It was sort of criminally overlooked in 2005. It's one of the, on the UFO phenomenon out there and on the way the government has used the UFO and, again, not a monolithic entity, but people within the government have used the UFO phenomenon to cover up things that they're doing in other areas. And uh, the Benowitz case is a perfect and quite egregious example of how they did that. So, yeah, there's no question that there's been some of that stuff going on over the years as well. The thing that bothers me, of course, one of the cases that really kind of gets me going because I went through this in the 1980s, the MJ-12 documents, and that's something which, and we, you touched upon it briefly. This is this is something that just kept coming up over and over again. You know, I've been following the UFO field for quite a few years, and the thing that continues to upset me here is that your efforts to expose that which is not true seems to be beaten apart by the simple fact that we don't remember history and mm -hmm. we just bring the stuff back and I think about the MJ-12 for example where I was skeptical and then I heard William Moore one of the ringleaders ladies and gentlemen of the MJ-12 documents saying that he was a government disinformation agent and that's another issue here too we have several people over the years Richard Doty being another one who supposedly were involved in UFO disinformation are these people really doing what they allegedly did or are they just private individuals or people 
people who maybe were once in the military who are playing a game just to make themselves look better, superior, make a buck at a book. Who knows? Bingo. By and large, I choose the latter option for 600, Alex. <laughs> the, if, if you're really conducting disinformation or misinformation, you do not want to draw it to the public's attention. So if misinformation or disinformation was conducted in the 1950s, odds are we still don't know about it today. I think that's a pretty safe bet, certainly in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. I mean, you do not want to bring these things to light unless you absolutely have to, even though the disinformation itself would, of course, be out in the public, but you don't want to fess up to it. Instead, we get guys like Richard Doty who uh, come forward and seemingly, happily, want to be in the public eye. He keeps coming back. To me, that's the sign more of a person who is doing it for their own amusement. Now, at some point in his career, maybe Doty, back when he was with AFOSI, was actually doing it on the government's dime. Who knows? But today, if he's doing it, I think he's doing it, and Project Serpo pops to mind. I think he's doing it more for his own amusement than anything else. Bill Moore, interestingly, you know, Moore's an interesting cat, and uh, my good friend Greg Bishop knows him quite well and has a different view of Bill Moore, I think, than most people in the UFO community do who sort of look at him as, as the Antichrist or something because he came out in the late 1980s and, and said what he said. But if you read what Moore said carefully at that conference in Las Vegas, and if you look at it with the, the benefit of hindsight in 20 years, almost 20 years later, some of what he was saying was true. And I think it's the way he presented it. And I think I've heard interviews where even he admits that the confrontational nature of the way he presented it, it's just who Bill Moore is, was maybe not the best way to get it across. But I think he was trying to warn people, too, that you were being used. Linda Moulton Howe is a perfectly good example of somebody who has consistently been used by people and fed false information for whatever reason. And there are others, too. I think the MJ-12 documents, he might have been hinting at that as well. And I think his point was, look, if it looks too good to be true, it is. And be very careful because there are people out here for various reasons that are, are using you. And other people have talked about how in the Cold War, some of those reasons had a lot to do, not with UFOs, but in terms of uh, dealing with the Soviet Union and counterintelligence operations. And, and ufologists in the UFO community get caught in the middle of that and trying, in, in some cases, for instance, trying to follow leaks of information and see where it would go and how it would go. And, and you know, that's a whole different radio show to talk about that kind of stuff than just this. But, you know, Moore's not quite as evil as people make him out to be. And I think he actually probably had a couple of good points at that Vegas conference that if you look back on what he said in hindsight, you go, you know what, he was right. Doesn't excuse what he did. And it certainly doesn't excuse the way he, he sort of made his announcement and then fled the hall. But uh, on the other hand, if you've got a whole bunch of people in a, in a room that are basically um, lighting torches and, and getting pitchforks ready, you might want to be a hasty retreat as well. So um, I think it was a, a phenomenon at the time, that particular lecture. But I think people should look almost 20 years later what Bill Moore was saying about how people could be used by people within government and even private citizens as well and ask themselves, is that happening to me? Am I being fed information that looks too good to be true? And if it is looking too good to be true, then it probably is too good to be true.
This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Dana. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. I don't know if we're too good to be true or not good enough, but we do our best here. We've got Paul Kimball, documentary filmmaker, trying to pose a little bit of a reality check on the UFO field. Now, in the time that you've been following this, how did you first get involved? This is a pretty screwy business, of course, and I think a lot of people would look at this after spending a few weeks checking the online chatter and saying, why am I getting involved in this? So why did you? Well, yeah, it depends on who you ask in the um, UFO community, but you've, because uh, everybody has a lot of different explanations as to why I get involved, but you're asking the right person because I'm the only one who knows the real answer. And, you know, it's, it's kind of complex. Stan Friedman is my uncle. He married my dad's sister 30 years ago. So I make no bones about it when I would go to family reunions. He was one of the more interesting people to talk to. I love all my relatives, but here was this nuclear physicist who was talking about UFOs. Well, that's pretty cool. And as a kid, and especially my teens, you know, that was an interesting thing to, to talk to him about. And I attended a couple of his lectures, as did thousands upon thousands of other people across uh, North America over the years, and noticed that his lectures really today sound an awful lot like they did back in the 1980s when I heard them but that's fine. But, you know, he kind of, he didn't inspire me, but he certainly created an interest. My dad, who was a lawyer and a judge, had UFO books in the house. I think most people in the 1970s probably did. A lot of my dads were the ancient astronaut, Eric Von Donneken kind of things. But, you know, as a kid, I read some of those too, or at least flipped through them. So I had an awareness of UFOs. And then, frankly, I didn't think of anything of them really until about 2000, 2001, when I decided, wouldn't it be fun to uh, do a documentary about Stan, his career? Um, because his career spans much of the history of ufology. So it was uh, it was less a film about UFOs and more a film about the person and the uh, the sociology of the uh, the field that he was working in. But, you know, there was some UFO stuff, obviously, in it, too. You couldn't do a film about Stan without talking about Roswell and MJ-12 and, and these other things. I really, you know, despite the fact that I'd been, I'd been aware of the UFO phenomenon before that, it's really that film in 2001 and the research I did and some of the people I met. I met Carl Flock. Kevin Randall, for instance, who became friends of mine, the late Carl Flock, unfortunately, one of the uh, the great figures in, in the UFO field in the last 20 or 30 years, who was highly underrated by people, and his, his passing uh, from Lou Gehrig's disease last year was was a great loss to ufology, but also just he was a nice guy. Carl was a good guy. And so, you know, once you meet those people and you realize, hey, Stan's not the only nice guy who's reasonably level-headed out there looking at this. You've got Kevin Randall, Carl Flock, Brad Sparks, Dick Hall, Bruce McAbee, and then I can go down the long 
long list of people. I said, well, look, I'll do another film, and then I'll do another film about this subject because it interests me. And so it kind of, it's like a whirlpool. It kind of, once you get into it, it sucks you in. And I suppose, in a sense, I'm lucky because if I had met, and I did, Stephen Greer when doing that first film, if he had been the only person I met, I probably would not be talking to you today. I interviewed Dr. Greer for about half an hour, and uh, my cameraman had a, sorry, not my cameraman, my sound man, after he left, had a particular name for him that I won't mention on air. But we all kind of agreed, oh, good heavens, let's go talk to somebody else. And we did. We found lots of other people that, that were perhaps a bit more rational. But I had the advantage of being able to talk and meet people that took the subject seriously. And so I, I like to think I went down the right whirlpool or rabbit hole. And I think, unfortunately, far too many people, because of the Internet, go to these websites and stuff, especially younger people, and they get sucked down a different whirlpool. And they're not talking to Stan or Kevin or Carl. Whether you agree with them or disagree with them about particular things, they're bright, intelligent, rational people. They're not talking to those people. They're reading sort of the antithesis of Kevin, Carl, Stan, and Brad. And those are the people that you'll find on the Internet. And largely because guys like Brad, Kevin, Carl, and Stan don't have an Internet presence, really. They haven't caught up to the world of blogs, although Kevin keeps one, but he doesn't update very regularly. Um, a lot of these older, more serious ufologists don't understand, or if they do understand, they just don't have the time or the energy to deal with the Internet and with constantly updating stuff. And I think that's how, unfortunately, most people are getting their information these days, though. And so you leave this void, and into this void, where the serious voices are not often heard, come everybody else. And I think that's what most people are getting when they look through the Internet for UFO information. They're getting everybody else. And that's unfortunate. I was lucky. I got, you know, that small group of people that are worth listening to. So what would be your choice for the top three Internet resources for this kind of information? Places you would look for coherent information and also links to other good voices. I mean, besides your blog. Yes, of course. <laughs> um, and the Paracast, obviously. Absolutely. <laughs> and I sound like I'm joking, but actually, you know, I'm quite impressed by your show. In the, the, a couple of weeks ago, you had Mac Tonys and Kevin Randall on, and you've had a, Jim Mosley. As far as I know, you're the only radio show of any sort that's had Jim on. We've had him on and, twice. Yeah, Jim's a great guy. He's a curmudgeonly old fellow, and, you know, he's not perfect, but he's a great guy to listen to if you're interested in UFO history. Well, yeah, the, also, you know, Jim is a personal buddy of mine. He's one of my best friends in the entire world, and yeah. he, he actually gave me my first full-time job. So I really enjoy talking to Jim. I talk to him every couple of weeks, even when we're not doing an interview. And yeah, he, he didn't say no to me, and I'm glad of that, but he could have, you know. Yeah, well, he calls me every now and then, and I subscribe, or non-subscribe, as it were. But yeah, no, I really like Mosley. I think his book, Shockingly Close to the Truth, is probably the best book you can read if you want to understand ufology. Not the UFO phenomenon, but ufology, which is to say the people and the sort of subculture that is ufology. So, you know, shockingly close to the truth, go on to Amazon.com and, and pick up a copy if you don't have it. It's a really good read if you want to know who Stan Friedman is and Jacques Vallée and get some views on some of these other people. I think Mosley's book is unique in many respects in the UFO literature that's out there, so I highly recommend it, even though it might not be for everybody's taste. But sometimes you have to swallow a bitter pill to make yourself feel better, so there you go. In terms of Internet resources, absolutely no doubt, if you want to do serious research, the first place to start is the Project Blue Book or Archive, which is run by my friend William Wise. And if you go to my blog on the sidebar, there's a link to it. I can't remember off the top of my head what the exact URL is, but they're going through all the old Project Blue Book files and slowly but surely putting them all up in the Internet so you can read them. They're all on microfilm, and it's a tremendous historical 
historical endeavor to take information that was at risk of being either lost to us or at least was not accessible to 99.9% of the people and putting it up online so you can see it. And yeah, sure, a lot of the Blue Book stuff is garbage and, you know, it's boring and dull, but there are nuggets in the Blue Book files. In fact, one ufologist said to me that the best UFO case ever might be like the Raiders of the Lost Ark that, you know, when they put the Lost Ark of the Covenant at the end of the film into the giant hall with other boxes, mm-hmm. might be sitting there in the Project Blue Book files or in other government files that nobody's read yet and properly investigated. So there might be a case. The Kelly Johnson case, by the way, was one of those. It sat for decades and nobody really looked at it. And then it was discovered years and years after the fact. And people went back and, and did the research and investigation then. For those people that would say it has to be today, we have to look at what's happening today, I would say there's lots of stuff out there from the past that still hasn't been looked at yet. This is just the stuff we know about, Paul. There are a lot of yes. cases that I can tell you have never been reported to anyone ever. Uh, mass sightings that no one knows about. And that's what keeps me interested in this field. It's the stuff that is not on the radar that I suspect is where we're going to find some real answers. Unfortunately, sure. what we see now is so many people are interested in the case of the day. O'Hare, I don't know what kind of case that's going to be. Obviously, the story is not told yet. It's too early in the game. But that's the case that consumes people's attention. So certainly we're going to mention it, but we're trying to set a reality for it. The fact is O'Hare may be a pretty decent sighting once all the facts are in, or it may be just one of many that we're not going to have enough information about. Couldn't have said it better myself. Okay, you can copy that, by the way. You have permission. Yeah, thank you very much. The other thing that, that I would point out, too, is there is very much a North American centric, by which I mean the United States and to a lesser extent Canada, but by and large in the United States, an American centric view of the UFO phenomenon. If you talk to Americans in particular, I love Americans. I love America. I don't mean to be too critical here, but by and large, as far as most ufologists in the United States are concerned, despite the fact that they will protest to the contrary, ufology begins and ends at you know the oceans, the Pacific and the, the Atlantic and then the two borders. And it's not that they're not aware that there's this, all these other cases out there. They are. They'll always tell you, oh, yes, it's a worldwide phenomenon, blah, blah, blah. Then when you ask them to name the best cases, they'll all be American, by and large, with a few exceptions. And so how many people in the United States, for instance, know about the Tehran case in 1976, the jet fighter case out of Iran? Great case. A lot of good stuff in there. And you don't hear that mentioned all that often. By the way, Paul, we have about a minute left. So why don't we start looking to begin to wrap this up and then maybe we can adjourn this to another session and proceed. Go ahead. Sure. I would just say to folks, be reasonable, be rational. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. And remember that the UFO phenomenon is two things, worldwide, which means you should look beyond just the boundaries of your own country, but also remember that it's a mystery. No matter what anybody tells you, it hasn't been explained. If somebody tells you it's aliens from outer space, they can't prove it. If somebody tells you it's crypto-terrestrials, they can't prove it. If somebody tells you they think it might be those things, then you're talking about a theory and you can have an interesting discussion with them. But it remains a mystery. We don't know what it is, and that's why it's worthy of continued investigation. Paul, where do we find out more information? Check out your blogs. You can check out my blog, The Other Side of Truth, at www.redstarfilms, all one word, .blogspot.com. And that's the best place to go to look for any information about me. Okay, we're going to, by the way, have a direct link at theparacast.com. Paul Kimball, thank you very much for joining us for a session of sensibility, a great reality check about the UFO field. Thanks for joining us this week on the Paracast. Thanks, guys. Great talking to you. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. 
just a reminder, if you want to get a hold of us here at the PowerCast, send your email to news at thepowercast.com. That's news at thepowercast.com. We also invite you to visit our online forums. Go to thepowercast.com and click on the links to our message forums. We welcome you aboard. Entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. So, Jeff Ritzman, we're so glad to have you back again, and maybe we should make you the third person on this show every week because <laughs> yeah. you do such yeah. a wonderful job. Okay, Thanks. we talked about on the first half of the show with Paul Kimball, of course, and that mm-hmm. is all the publicity that this sighting in O'Hare has received. Right. Now, it's been, of course, there are two stories in the Chicago Tribune. There was one just the other day. There are, of course, reports on lots of TV stations. Newsweek magazine had interview with right. Paul Port. Now, let's point out here that the facts are not in yet. Exactly. I think there is a serious danger here that this is going to work against the serious UFO field because of the fact that people are talking about it before they're ready to really report genuine results. Well, I think, you know, any time that you've got um, any UFO report heat in the mainstream media, I mean, the thing that you have to look at is is back through the past 10 or 15 years, hasn't it always worked against anything serious happening? I mean, you'll hear these things because it's shock value. It's a good human interest story at the time. You know, this is the stuff you'll hear at the end of the, of the 11 o'clock news that you never hear about again. You never figure out what happened with it. There's no follow-up. I mean, I think the only case that we can look at over the years is, is the Phoenix Lights. You know, that was that was pretty well followed up by a lot of people. I mean, I think the only thing that, that we can say is, like the Phoenix Lights, that was that was very much um, in the news over a series of nights where they did a little bit more investigative stuff than what, what they're going to do probably with O'Hare. O'Hare kind of, I mean, you got to admit, that's a pretty dramatic sighting by the people who reported it. That kind of oh, stuff yeah. is, is not typical. Structured objects are not typical. You know, over the years, you know, when I was getting sighting reports, it got to the point where, you know, my first question when somebody would come to me with a sighting report was, how many windows did it have? Because I just, I got tired of dealing with lights in the sky. So, looking at O'Hare, a structured object actually interacting with the environment of the clouds, I mean, I think that's a pretty dramatic sighting. So, it's a big human interest story right now. But, yeah, it's going to hurt ultimately because, you know, you've got already these stupid answers coming out of people in the know who, who are allegedly in the know of, of, you know, this is a weather anomaly or, or what have you. I mean, give me a break. Stuff like that, I hate to say it, but when they've got somebody who is, uh, who was at the FAA said that or, or, or something like that, they're considered the authority. So if the majority of people hear that it's a weather anomaly, I hate to tell you, but that's what the majority of people are going to think. Well, and the other thing just, you have you know, to bear in mind is that they, provide these knee-jerk reactions to kind of stem it at well, yeah. the beginning to stop it, to cut their losses, and they throw that out so people will believe that, and then it doesn't matter about the kooks who say it's something else. Exactly. So that you but have you just, to expect. You, uh, that's the operative word, kooks. You know, you've got, you've got the majority of people who who are looking into this seriously, like Peter Davenport and people. You've got people like them that are just going to look like kooks by the mainstream media. I mean, look at how the media has treated this over the years. They'll always gravitate 
gravitate at any UFO convention or any event like that, they're always going to gravitate to the fringe kook element, you know? And that's always been a big problem. I don't see that this is probably going to end up any different. I hate to say it, but... You know, it is a pretty dramatic sighting, but you know, the media is always going to always going to play to the you know, look at these kooks type of aspect of things. I don't see it being any different. Well, that's because the media is not about reporting news or facts. It's really about creating entertainment at this point. Exactly. They're not trying to discuss things in a serious way because people don't want that when they turn on the television. Right. They want to be entertained. They want to be distracted. That's sad because Paul Kimball brought up the idea that people are overreacting to this and that on his blog, he, he writes about how, well, some people said it was spinning, some people didn't mention that, right. uh, but, you know, those are minor points, I think, when you see it, like you say, Jeff, you see a structured metallic object, yeah. it's, it's lower than 2,000 feet, because there was a 1,900-foot cloud cover, mm-hmm. so it's lower than 2,000 feet, which is pretty darn low for something like this, and then it's seen shooting upwards, leaving this hole in the clouds, and this is this is not <laughs> subtle. No, it's significant. Pretty- significant. It is significant. And now there's some interesting questions I think about, like, you know, at this point, isn't it probably likely that airports have a tremendous amount of video surveillance after 9-11? Oh, there's footage of it. Make no mistake about that. There's footage of it. Absolutely. Well, well, that's what I mean. Like, well, so where is that footage? Of course, they're not going to present that footage. Absolutely. And also look at it this way. All they're talking about, which is, again, misdirection, is the people who might have captured it on their cell phones because they captured yeah. because they captured the hanging of uh, right. of, of Saddam yeah. Hussein okay they caught that therefore people must have caught this by cell phones now cell phones are horrendous cameras and certainly to catch something a rough or a fuzzy image it's okay but if you want to capture an image of something that may indeed represent a real craft you want all the detail you can you don't want a cell phone picture because if you've read the reviews of cell phone pictures 99% of those cell phones suck there are very few that have decent picture quality but we'll take what we can get here I mean yeah we know cell phone pictures suck but we'll take what we can get because I doubt that somebody had a 10 megapixel camera ready to roll on a tripod. It just doesn't happen yeah. that way. So, yeah. you know, we have to take all of this with a grain of salt. Look, if, if a cell phone camera grabbed footage of this thing, grabbed even some stills, that would be something. Right now, right. we don't have anything. Right. I, I mean, it, it, it's one of those things that, that you know, it's going to it's gonna fade away. It's not going to last. Maybe the interest in it, as far as the public goes, is going gonna, is gonna to fade away. The interest that we have in it, of course, is not going to wane so easily. I think we're still in the, in the point right now that you could get some information on it if you wanted to follow up on it. If somebody wanted to investigate it out there and do so seriously, I think it's fresh enough now that you still could do that. After the media gets a hold of it, judging by the excuses they've already thrown out, you know, it's going to fade from public view. But, I mean, right. yeah, a structured object, that's a significant thing. That's not something that we usually hear about. But I've always said to people when it comes to this kind of stuff, you know, you only heard about this because it was over at an airport. You know, if, if this was Gene in his backyard, this wouldn't be nearly as big an event. This is because 
was over an airport, okay, because that right there poses a safety risk, or at least in the mind of some passengers would pose a safety risk. They've run into this problem in Mexico City for years because there have been significant objects sighted over major airports in, in, in Mexico City. So I think any any excuse that's being thrown out by the airlines or by the FAA is going to be, you know, basically fueled by that. We want people to feel safe here. You know, we monitor this kind of stuff. We didn't pick up anything up on radar. So it, for them, it becomes a liability as, you know, any more than it would uh, for any other airport. I mean, they're they're strictly trying to say, hey, we're safe here. We know what's in the air. Nothing's going to happen here. So on one side, you kind of can't blame them for throwing that kind of excuse out, but they don't see it as a significant event, probably because, you know, look at what Mr. Haynes collects as far as reports from uh, from airplane pilots. I mean, <laughs> if it weren't for him, do you think he'd ever hear of that kind of stuff? Absolutely not. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com right now. Click on the C-Crane Sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners, Angie and Dana. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at Hey guys, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Jeff Ritzman, extraordinary UFO investigator and experiencer. We're talking about the possible impacts of the O'Hare sightings. Now, according to the item I read in the Chicago Tribune, it said basically that the case became something that they knew about because of the fact that Peter Davenport went to the Chicago Tribune with his information. And one of the criticisms 
that Paul Kimball makes is, you know what? Maybe he did that prematurely. Maybe he should have waited. Why shouldn't he wait till they have more information? Then maybe go over. <sighs> well, but the longer you wait, the longer you have between reporting something and when the actual incident happened. And I think he went to the Tribune because of the fact that he had people from United who were willing to go on record. I heard one interview with Davenport where, indeed, he brought on one of the people who was one of the witnesses, and they were willing to go on record and speak about it. And that's actually the first time I heard something about there being the potential of having some images taken on a cell phone somewhere. Mm. I mean, the, the further away you move from something in time, the less likely it is that you can actually put people, uh, you know, attach people to the event or get people in. Interested. I mean, Paul. Well, not only that, but the longer they have that any witness would have to embellish it in their own mind, whether right. that be on purpose or not. You know, you really got to brand this kind of stuff while it's hot and get it while it's hot. So I don't, you know, the same, the same kind of thing could be said for uh, for Jaime Musan going to, you know, the Mexican uh, uh, community or Mexican media with broadcasting footage on TV and then asking for witnesses. You know, I mean, that kind of thing has happened before. Was it premature of Peter to do that? I, I don't know. That's kind of like you could split that right down the middle. Yeah. Um, you know, it, I don't necessarily think he was wrong to do it to get it out there now while it's still a fresh story but at the same time to go out to say this happened and then to ask for witnesses that's not exactly the way to go with that the other issue here would be that you see we're all confronted by the dilemma of Roswell where we only start investigating it and I'm talking about collectively the UFO community years after the event occurred where memories had faded where some people were no longer alive now we have a situation that's fresh in the memories let's go in there and learn more about it now. Let's get the information now. Let it get out before things sort of fade out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the question at this point is, is it already past that point? <laughs> you know, I mean, this is whatever, a month old now or almost a month old? A couple it's of months. A couple of months old. Two months. A couple of months old now. So it's like, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, yeah, November. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things that, you know, is it already too late for that? I, I don't know. I mean, it, footage wise, I mean, you're not going to get anything out of the, the airport about that. The only thing you got maybe is, like David said, the cell phone footage, but talking to witnesses. I mean, at this point, are how many um, are going to be willing to come forward at this point? Maybe it wasn't jumped on soon enough in some in some fashion. You know, um, when you wait that long, it's just, in my opinion, the longer you wait to question people in depth about this kind of stuff, the, the more that the mind has to, to replay this over and over in somebody's head, and each time it gets replayed over and over in your head, a little bit more gets gets embellished upon to such a point that it bears little resemblance to what actually was seen at that point in time. A very serious well, now, danger, Dev yes. Well, Devonport's claiming in the Newsweek article that they posted the information about this uh, on the, um, the, the uh, New Fork website on the 12th or 13th of November. So that mm -hmm. within a week, they had information up. And to quote him, he says... Uh, I was flabbergasted that nobody was paying attention. Of course, I, that wouldn't surprise me, given that the yeah. mainstream media really doesn't pay any attention to this stuff. And, you know, right now, in terms of where we're at with what's going on with Iraq, and uh, this was right around the elections, I mean, uh, right. the media was really distracted. There was no way they were going to cover this in any significant way. I think he had to really sort of push this. And, and, and like you said, Jeff, if this had not been over an airport, if the witnesses had not been airline employees, if this has happened over a Walmart, 
Oh, you'd have never heard about it. You know, we'd never yeah. know. We wouldn't even be talking about this. No. Yeah. That's the sad point about it is, you know, they talk about how many thousands of UFO sightings there are a year in the United States. And then you just sit and you look at that number and you go, okay, how many didn't get reported? You know, because somebody either forgot about it uh, or didn't want to come forward because they'd be made fun of for it or what have you. Especially I mean, Walmart, the- of course. You know, anything over Walmart <laughs> yeah. is not to be taken seriously. I just want to tell right. everybody that. we, But we can't believe that Walmart is any place that we can take seriously. Therefore, if UFOs <laughs> fly over Walmart, I mean, because they want to get a cheap deal on a part for their spaceships, well, right. because, you know, especially the Chinese made, the Chinese right. make beautiful spaceships, I had to tell so, you that. So there's their invasion plan. They're going to land at Walmart so nobody pays any attention to oh, them. Oh, it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. <laughs> well, it, it just makes you wonder, we're back to this thing about UFOs landing on the White House lawn. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I'm really starting to believe that if we had the event we always talk about, you know, UFOs landing on the White House lawn, it wouldn't be covered in the media. It, nobody would talk about it. It just wouldn't happen. I mean, look at the kinds of nasty things that are going on in the White House in, right now that the media won't touch. The bad stuff that the government is doing that they won't talk about. They're going to talk about something like UFOs landing on the front lawn. You'd think that this would be on the front page of, uh, of every newspaper in the world. It's I, I, I used to have faith in humanity that people would, would, would do the right thing. I guess as I'm getting older, this faith is being beaten out of me and I'm becoming more of a sort of a hard-boiled well, realist it, it's, yeah it's the it's the stigma attached to it I mean that that has done all this I mean that's that's why a lot of people don't want to come forward that's why the media tends to treat it like a, a human interest uh, tongue-in-cheek type stories I mean this has been going on for years it's never it's never treated with any kind of seriousness you always get you know the the short uh, what three or five minute report on a UFO sighting in your hometown and then of course when they cut back to the report uh, sitting there at the desk, there's a joke about little green men, and you know uh, maybe somebody's been eating too much popcorn. Ha <laughs> ha. So I mean, <laughs> this has been for years that this kind of stuff's happened, and only when it's really a big like like the Phoenix Lights thing, or back in the Gulf Breeze days when there was a lot going down down there, that was that was treated a little bit more more serious as a serious news story. But anytime you get one of these one-offs like O'Hare, it's going to be a tongue-in-cheek type human interest story, and it's just not going to come across with the importance that any of us sitting here uh, are going to put upon it. And I think, and like I've said before, I think in, in my opinion, that's a direct result of what I talk about very little in, in all of this stuff. is like the government involvement in hushing this stuff up. They've facilitated this tongue-in-cheek, kook, fringe element type stuff to downplay to to dumb this down over the years and now the public is just conditioned to it i mean whoever sees a ufo they're not you know that's that's the first words out of their mouth hmm. so i mean this is this is the standard fare as far as i'm concerned i don't see anything different happening with this one than any other one you're in the paracast with gene steinberg and david biedney you never know what's going to happen next Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. 
tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to that fabulous UFO investigator, Jeff Ritzman. And we're talking about the impact of the O'Hare sightings, good, bad, ugly. Is this adding attention to a lot of serious cases or taking it away? You have to wonder about this idea of people uh, being conditioned to make fun of it because think back to the 70s with movies like Close Encounters of the Third Kind that really try to look at this stuff not in a silly way like E.T., but in more of a, I don't want to call it realistic, but maybe a little bit more of a, what's the word I need here? It, 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 they're trying to make it a little more serious. They're just trying to make it a little more real. And, you know, I saw that movie in Venezuela and Caracas. I went to go see that, like, the week it opened. And uh, you had an audience of people who, being Venezuelans, a lot of them had had paranormal experiences. It, it seems like in South America, people are much more open to paranormal entities of all sorts, of countries where you have things like Santeria that are, are widely accepted and are practiced, where you have uh, just a tremendous a tremendous amount of coverage of these topics in the media where you really don't have it in the United States. But people went to that movie and they came out talking thoughtfully, not going, oh, man, see those crazy-looking aliens? So, yeah. I, I mean, I, you'd want to hope that people at this point would maybe, with all of the stuff that's on things like the Discovery Channel and the, and mm. the Learning Channel, and they have, yeah, some of it is sensationalized, but a lot of it isn't. A lot of it tries to yeah. approach this in a more sober way. Has that had no effect? on anybody? I think it has. I mean, I think what you'd find with a lot of people out there, at least at least in my experience, when I've talked to people about stuff we've seen or, or what have you, it, I, I think back to one one lady I was talking to at one point that her and her husband and, and my wife and I went on a weekend to uh, to Gettysburg because they were super into the whole ghost, uh, ghost hunting type thing. And we got to talking in our hotel room about the whole UFO subject, the whole alien subject, and how I was involved with that and what I, what research I'd done. And she made the statement that really kind of stuck with me, and I still remember her saying, I don't mind the ghost stuff so much because I feel like I could get away from that if I had to, whereas the UFO and the alien <laughs> stuff I'm a little less comfortable with. <laughs> so I have get to wonder. from the... That was, her per- that was her perception, you know. And I said, well... You know, the ghost stuff is is equally as interesting to me, but I have to wonder, you know, is the ridicule possibly a symptom of people's uncomfortableness about the whole UFO thing, the idea that there are things that can drop into our airspace to interact with the environment, to interact with people, and then leave without, I mean, with like completely uh, on whatever they want. I mean, without any repercussion whatsoever, I think that kind of tends to make people a little uncomfortable. And I have to wonder if some of the ridicule isn't, you know, a symptom of people being uncomfortable about that very idea. Mm. I mean, you got to admit, that's a pretty uncomfortable damned idea. Uh, you know what? There's an even more uncomfortable idea, which is the crypto-terrestrial theory. Yeah. These things could be sitting right here among us right. in a slightly... Uh, altered time shift sense where it's not even that they're coming down, we don't even know where they're going to come down, we can't stop them, but oh my god, they could be standing right next to us and we wouldn't know it. Yeah, yeah, and I'm a How big... How creepy uh, is that? I'm well, Jeff, big, uh, I'm are you trying to tell us something, Jeff? I'm, I'm a big subscriber to that, <laughs> to that idea. You know, I think, I think that that to me is a lot more 
plausible an explanation than the the, the extraterrestrial hypothesis. I've never uh, I've never been a big subscriber to the ET hypothesis to explain all this kind of stuff because, in my opinion, if it were extraterrestrial, I believe with all the time that we've had now that we've been investigating this thing as a culture, we'd have something. <laughs> we don't have anything, and and to that effect, like I've mentioned to you guys before on the show, that uh, you know I've said that these things appear to be able to be real when they want and not when they don't want and also to exist somehow in the middle somewhere and I think that of course that's something that people have a hard time getting their head around well what do you mean they can be real but not real anytime I give a lecture and I talk about it or I tell people I lecture on UFOs or what have you they'd say oh are they real and I'd say well <laughs> that depends on what you mean by real um, you know if it's if it's can you touch it can you feel it can you smell it yeah but only when it wants you to <laughs> so when I was listening to, uh, to Mac on the show what two weeks ago now and he said something that really hit home for me because I've never been able to verbalize it as good as him he said you know when you see the aliens uh, people report seeing them in a the field taking samples and whatnot that's that's for our benefit <laughs> I believe that whatever they are they're actively trying to give us the impression that they are extraterrestrial spacemen from planet whatever but I think that that's um, I think the whole U- yeah the whole UFO thing is is to me is a symptom of something much larger and a friend of mine told me that a long time ago he's like do you ever get the feeling that it's this isn't the this isn't the meat this is a symptom of something something much larger and I said yeah yeah I definitely get that <laughs> I get that feeling can I qualify it no but you know I've always had the um, I've always had the belief from early on that I didn't think these things were from outer space I I don't know why I've never held that opinion and um, and I get challenged a, a quite a bit on that on message boards and whatnot. Well, why don't you think that? And you know, because so, I just don't see any evidence other than it flies in the air <laughs> to say that they're from another planet. I don't see anything that says that. Let me look at a you couple know. of things here, Jeff. Now let's separate yeah. the two aspects of crypto terrestrial. Mm-hmm. Now crypto terrestrial, as far as Mac says, Mac Tony, ladies and gentlemen, is the gentleman we're talking to. He was on the show two weeks ago, and he talked about a race of beings that co exists from us, let me say that again, a race of beings that coexist with us on our world, but maybe they're in the oceans, they're in the caves, whatever. We don't see them because there's so much of our planet that's not explored. He didn't specifically say they necessarily had to be in another dimension, okay? And we're not talking about entities from another universe, another dimension, whatever, that exist on Channel 7 as opposed to Channel 3 or whatever channel we're on. Now, do you favor one approach or the other or neither are you agnostic well, about that yet well no i years ago when i was um dr maccabee and i were, were talking uh, bruce maccabee a pretty well-known ufo researcher at this point we're talking and i remember he and um and another researcher i was talking to at the time which was bob exler who's long since quote-unquote retired from ufology i was talking to the two of them one time about this very subject and and i i think it was maccabee that said to me you know i think a lot of people throw out the idea that these things could be from out of the ocean or was it i think it was exler actually said that he said you know it's it's a really interesting possibility i said well what would make you think that and he said well his argument for it was is that you know we all 
crawled out of the primordial water uh, way back when, you have to realize that probably not all of us crawled out of the water. What stayed in the water would have millions of years of evolution on us, and could that account for you know, the high technology that these things possess, maybe. He said, what branch of the military service do you see most associated with UFOs and UFO reports and suppressing data and what have you? Department of Naval Intelligence. And I said, well, he said, well, 75% of all UFO sightings are around water. Yeah. Mm, So I kind of started to think, maybe that's... Maybe that's something to that. Now, how they're able to, would they be able to do what they do in the terms that I'm thinking, which is that they are, uh, I said to David uh, when he visited me a, a couple of weeks ago, you know, I, I stuck my finger in the air. And I said, you know, it's like if you could rip this and look inside, that's where they are. <laughs> so it's, uh, do I think that they might exist in the same place as us, but maybe out of phase, whatever that may mean, or out of sync with us. I think that's a distinct possibility. And not because it's less provable or less or, or more esoteric, but it's it seems to fit with me that, um, like I've mentioned to David on a couple occasions, that I have got the feeling when having an experience that these things were in a hurry, as if they only had a certain amount of time to be in this space with us and then they had to go almost at the time I mentioned it to my my research partner I said it's like they're they're operating within a window UFOs in a hurry let's pursue that in a moment you are about to enter another dimension a dimension not only of sight and sound but of mind a journey into a sinister land of secret rites passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and tune in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany, our favorite UFO researcher, one of our favorites, Jeff Ritzman, joins us again, and we're talking shop, as it were. We're trying to talk about different aspects of the UFO phenomenon to see what sticks and what doesn't. And so would you be saying, Jeff, that perhaps the forces behind the UFOs are using some kind of technology to jump into a dimensional rift and get here, but for whatever reason, that dimensional rift or 
the equipment can only do this temporarily, and after a certain period of time, they have to blink out and go back from whence they came. Yeah, I mean, is that um, is that the reason those UFO settings are rather short? I mean, is there a limited amount of time that these things can actually coexist here before either they can't get back or um, or they have to stay longer, which they'd rather not do? I mean, uh, I've always got the feeling that that they operate within a window. There's a certain point in time where they can enter, and there's a certain time where they have to go. And um, I think that that we are instrumental in that in some way. I don't know how exactly, but that we're instrumental in allowing them to enter this reality, if you want to call it that. Uh, it, there was a paper I read years ago that, uh, and I'm not sure if this is the Brookings paper or not, but they basically, the government had basically hired a bunch of scientists to evaluate the problem way back in the 50s, I think it was. And I remember at least the one, the one scientist had said something to the effect of, I believe these beings have only as much ability to enter our reality as we give to them. The best way to to, to stave off a full-scale invasion would be complete denial. So when people say to me about, you know, the whole government conspiracy thing, I said, you know, you don't know that the government isn't doing us a favor here. <laughs> says, you know, if they would come out tomorrow and say, this is real, it's all real, we've known about it for years, would that open up the floodgates? Would they then be able to enter our reality Anytime they wanted and stay as long as they like, you know, I don't know. I think it's an interesting thought, but uh, I can tell you that at least in my experience, if the effort is made to see them, you will see them. There's no question in my mind about that. Uh, not after this many years at this point. If you make the effort to actively seek out this phenomena, it will take interest in you. There is no doubt in my mind of that, and nobody's going to change my mind about that. So I think that we're part of the machine that gets them here. I think if we weren't here, they wouldn't be here. It's uh, it's symbiotic, I think, in some way. So um, that that complicates it tremendously because when you said that, it, it, I just got this idea in my head: they are us. When, when you say that we facilitate mm -hmm. their entry to this dimensional reality, right? It, <laughs> Sorry about that. Feeling. No, it's just I kind of got this idea that yeah, that. There is something about human emotional and spiritual energy that is appealing to these things. Or some energy that we don't know anything about. Perhaps. You know, the aspect of the belief, you know, uh, of I believe it and I want to see it and I'm going to actively try to find out this. I'm actively going to participate. And when that interest is sparked, whatever energy that might put out, if there is such a thing, seems to attract the attention of this phenomenon. I mean, so in a nutshell. Maybe we need to then talk about, Jeff, perhaps something a little uncomfortable for you, but you mentioned that I, I went to visit you, and, and mm -hmm. I had a great time, and uh, you um, took me out to some sites where you mm -hmm. had some experiences. Right. And uh, we visited those places, and I, I can tell our listeners that you, you were not thrilled about doing this. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Considering I wouldn't get out of the car. <laughs> I know. That, that one spot. That, Is that the spot only reason? Well, yeah. David got out of the. David gets out of the car and he's like, "Well, let's take a look around." I'm like, "Yeah, have at it, buddy. I'm staying right here." And uh, and he got out of the car. I did open the door, which was progress for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I was decidedly not comfortable doing that. I mean, it's um, I, and and I mean, I, I got to preface that by saying that back in the day, that that a lot 
of events were happening for me, I wouldn't even drive past those places. So I would actually go two exits up and backtrack. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, we yeah, avoid it, that, it, yeah. yeah it's, and it was daylight. I mean, why would I be afraid in the daylight? But I didn't even want to see that area because I think that while I remembered the, 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 the event itself, Straight away, I mean, no hypnosis. I don't do hypnosis. I don't do. It's like yeah, I remember it. Like I'll remember talking to you guys here tomorrow. When you pass by the actual place, it just becomes so tingly real. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I'd rather put it in memory than than go back there. So being able to drive up there in the dark was kind of. I should have taken you up there in the daytime, actually, so you could get a better lay of the land. But <clears throat> at least you get an idea of the kind of area it is and that it's very rural and that uh and yeah it's decidedly uncomfortable to be there uh at night not only i mean if we'd gone up there to look for wildlife would have been a totally different feeling for me but because we're up there looking at this saying this is where this happened this is where that happened it's in my head that you know we may possibly see something tonight who knows Right. Thankfully, I was, or, I, I was kind or of, not, no, I was, we didn't. <laughs> well, I was kind of hoping we would, and and I have my own reasons for that that Jeff and I have talked about that we don't necessarily need to go in, in, into detail about on the show here, but a couple of things, and, and Gene, I don't know if I mentioned this to you or not, but I was at Jeff's for a couple of days, and there was one strange thing that happened where I, I was sitting talking to Jeff in his apartment, and Jeff's cute little doggie was, was kind of hanging out under my feet. I was sitting on the couch, and the doggie was hanging out, uh, you know, sort of, uh, just sort of curled up at my feet. And I was talking to Jeff, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw what would look like a cat sort of walk by. And I figured, okay, well, just a dog here. Jeff probably has a cat as well. That, that's cool. And I just I didn't say anything. I didn't you know, even make a, a, a point of bringing up, oh, look at the kitty. So I saw out of the corner of my eye this cat walking by. And I thought, all right, great. Uh, we went out to dinner that night. Uh, Jeff took me out to dinner with his, uh, with his lovely wife and his son. And uh, on the way back, we're driving back to Jeff's apartment, and I don't know. I said something like, "Oh, so you know, you have a dog, you have a cat." And Jeff's like, "What?" <laughs> I said, "Oh, you, you know, I, I noticed the cat." Just like, "No, we don't have a cat." What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm sure I saw a cat go by, and just like, beep, no cat. So I mean, I don't know what that means. That was a little unusual, but but there we have it. I did have a slightly bizarre experience that uh, yeah, slightly bizarre. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I mean, I you see a cat that isn't there. This is the Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You never know what's going to happen next. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Hey, let me tell our listeners you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, the man who sees cats that aren't there, and <laughs> Jeff Ritzman. 
<laughs> and I want to approach this, David. You know, when you and I were talking the other day and you were sitting on the couch and I said, David, you know, how long have you been seeing cats? Uh, and he said, you mean the play or do you mean the little furry creatures? And I, I said, never saw the, well, I, I never saw the play. Uh, I, I like that song, though. But See, we don't ridicule people who see UFOs. We ridicule people who see cats. Yeah, ghost cats so. is definitely a problem. Yeah, Moisha Cats owns a great uh, deli. All right, there you go. Mr. Cats to you. Well, but, uh, I mean, what I would say to you, Dave, about that is yeah. that if you were to come back again and and stay for a few days, I don't know that you would see a cat again. Because if I look at it from the standpoint that I've always looked at it from, that you will see or tend to see what your brain can or will interpret as whatever is plausible to you at the time. Right. Um, was it a cat? No, it wasn't a cat because we don't have my dog would eat it. But you know, the next time you come up, you may, as I've said before, as I mentioned to you a while back, we saw a, a rectangle <laughs> floating towards the bottom. Why don't you let, let's talk about <laughs> this? Why don't you 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 bring that up now? You, you've brought yeah. it up. Why don't you describe to our our audience what what happened? It was, uh, I believe that was my son's birthday, uh, early December. My parents had come up for cake and ice cream, and my, my living room layout is, is my big leather chair faces my couch. And um, there's about maybe, what do you, Dave, six to seven feet between the couch and the chair, maybe? Probably about um, seven feet. Yeah. yeah. And uh, my mom was sitting in my leather chair, and I was sitting on the, at the end of the couch uh, talking, and my, my dog was curled up at her feet at that point. And um, pretty much out of nowhere, <laughs> we have a, a front sunroom in our condominium that, that uh, attaches to the living room. It's like a big open area that is, is full of windows and, and doors that go out onto the deck. And out of that room that's adjacent to the living room floats about, I'd say, 10 to 12 inches maybe off the floor, a rectangle. That's black. It's opaque, but it's fuzzy edged. It's blurry looking, and it's laying long ways. And it floats between the couch and a rocking chair, between me and my mom, and uh, and fades out right in toward towards the front of the fireplace where my Christmas tree was sitting, actually. And I would have blown it off, but I looked up at my mom to say, did she see that? But the problem was, is that before I said that, the dog snapped at it. <laughs> Which she doesn't do. She's like, the only thing she'd bite is a hot dog. So she reared up and, and kind of lunged bit at it. And maybe two seconds after that, it just faded into nothing. Now, your mom my saw mom. it though, right? My, I looked up my mom. I said, did you see that? She says, I saw something, but I don't know. What was that? <laughs> I said, I don't know. But it was a box. It was a square that was fuzzy edges if it had been blurred in Photoshop, like gas on blur, like 75-80% blur. But you could very clearly tell it was a rectangle laid on its side, and it just slowly right through the room. And uh, what the hell is that? It's severely weird. I mean, <laughs> you know? I've, never, I've never heard of such a thing in yeah, years I mean, I've been looking at paranormal stuff. It, it's very weird. It's weird. But when you say a cat, okay, a cat's body... About 12 yeah. inches off the ground, you know. It's about the same dimensions. I would say it was about the size of a cat. You're right. I mean, it's about that size. So it's all about your perception. I mean, when it comes to stuff like that, that that if the next time you came up, you may see a box. If you don't see that, yeah. you may see a light. I mean, we saw an arc light when you were here. You know, um, I, I that, didn't. That see you missed. That, you missed yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. But Lisa and I both saw that arc uh, of light go across the ceiling right near you. But it's. I think it's all based on perception. 
I think that goes right down to UFO sightings with uh, masses of people. The O'Hare thing. Some people said it was spinning. Some people said it wasn't. You know. Right. But everybody maybe, said it was a structured metal object. Though. Everybody absolutely seemed yeah. to feel that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think a lot of people out there in, in, that listen to your program may know this, but there are a lot of sightings. You know why a lot of UFO sightings go unreported a year? Because a lot of researchers don't want to talk about some of these sightings because they are so ridiculous. I personally had sightings, at least four, that were so incredibly bizarre, I felt kind of weird talking about them. One of them was that a lady in Bethesda, Maryland, actually sighted an 18-wheeler float over her house. Okay? Another lady reported to me that she saw the Star Trek Enterprise upside down over a field low near her house. This was in this was south of me. This was southern Maryland. I mean, you going to report that? <laughs> yeah, you know? it's just too weird. Just These are really the people's weird. perceptions of what they're seeing. If you're if you're not ready for it or you're not, it's totally unexpected. You may see anything. If it's on tape, different story. You know, then you know. Is what you saw coinciding with what's on the tape? I've had that too. I've had people say to me, that is not the object that I saw. What I saw was much more grand than that. Well, because that was your perception of it. You know, um, that raises the larger issue, of course, whether the forces behind the UFOs present themselves in a way altered to our understanding or we interpret it that way. I tend to think we interpret it a certain way. I mean, I don't think uh, that we're looking at anything that is any different than the elves and fairies you know, way back. I think we're dealing with probably the same type of thing. Whether it's the same thing, I don't know. But you would certainly see the progression looking at elves and gnomes and fairies right up to now where we're in this technological age or when we entered the technological age back in the 40s where the UFO thing came into play. Now it's aliens from another planet. Well, Jacques Vallée so, said very much the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, is that part, are they part of our collective culture that the way they appear to us is based upon our, our perception as a culture? All one need do is look back in the 50s and, and look at a lot of the structured object, genuine unknown photographs and tell me what the the similarity in a lot of them are they all have fins mm. <laughs> we had tail fins in the 50s do you remember i don't know if you ever read this book i read this when i was really young it was a very dense book and maybe i didn't understand much of it it was a book by dr carl Jung, the late swiss psychiatrist yes, <laughs> yes. i knew we were going to come to this place yeah. the collective <laughs> unconscious okay so dr Jung said that ufos were a manifestation of our collective unconscious so uh-huh of course, that makes it an internal phenomenon rather than external. So, right. Or maybe there's some kind of overachieving here where we have both the internal and external influences working in concert or at odds with each other. So, guys, right. what do you think? Well, you just described human perception. I mean, that's the whole thing. I mean, you have a set of external stimuli, and then you have our brains and our sensory input devices with which we process that external stimuli. People, Different people see different colors as slightly different colors. Different people can look at something and from their vantage point, from their cultural conditioning, from their state of mind, uh, right. they can all see something slightly different. But I, actually, not to change the subject, but I want to get back to the, what we were talking about before because, um, you know, Jeff mentioned this strange fuzzy black box, but right. Jeff, today, you and I spoke and yeah. um, you told me something and, and I, I'm, I'm hoping you'll share this with our audience because when I went to visit you, you had told me that it had been a while since you yeah. had a, a severe encounter, but apparently uh, uh, maybe um, a door has been reopened here. Before we open that door, I have another door to open. Door number two. 
For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, UFO researcher and experiencer. Jeff Ritzman's here. Okay, Jeff. Yeah. What's your answer? Well, it was um, this past Friday. My wife and I have been working pretty hard on a party for her, her 70th birthday for her father. And um, I, typically I go to bed, just so you know my, my sleep pattern a little bit. I usually don't go to bed until around 3, 30, 4 o'clock in the morning. And, and I don't require a huge amount of sleep anymore. But I had gone to bed. You know, I don't even remember now what time it was. But I went to bed. I was out in the living room, actually, playing a video game and watching some TV. And I was reading a book. And as I was reading the book, as I put the book down, I heard uh, three knocks on my on my deck door. And these were not... I live near a military installation. And... Uh, uh, they do a lot of, well, it's actually a development facility for weapons testing. They usually do not fire off any big guns during the night or very, very early mornings. That just doesn't happen. During the daytime, you may hear the occasional boom when the railgun fires or something like that. But these were three distinct knocks to the point that the glasses in my cupboard in the kitchen kind of tink tinked a little bit. I had earlier shut the window uh, that faces out. I put the curtains across the window that faces out onto the deck, so I couldn't see that direction. I actually had to go into the sermon and peek my head around the corner to look out the, the door and see big glass doors that we have to see if there was a gun on the deck. kind of freaked me out a little bit. And uh, I very slowly got up, and I kind of crept to the edge, and I looked around the edge of the wall, and I didn't see anybody. I didn't see anybody on the ground nor on the deck anywhere. With that, I fooled around in the house a little bit more, and I went to bed. As I'm in bed, I hear three very distinct bangs on what sounds like the deck, the decking on the on the deck, like somebody's jumping up and down. And I also heard the the crunch of a couple dead plants left out there from uh, from springtime and summertime that uh, were getting rustled. And again, <laughs> it freaked me out a little bit. And I told David that. In between this point, I had this definite palpable feeling that somebody was going to break into my house. And yeah, you may say, okay, somebody, you heard knocks on your door, you think somebody's, but it's not that kind of feeling that somebody's going to break into the house. This was, I totally believe someone is coming into the house. It's a very hard thing to describe and to adequately give a description to make people understand what I mean, but it is this absolute presence that someone is coming into the house. Uh, and I've never really had that before. But at any rate, I 
walk back down the hallway and I peek my head around and there's still nobody on the deck and there's nobody on the ground nobody's around so I came in I laid back down and I I had uh, it had probably been about an hour later uh, from all of that that I woke up and, and I rolled over and right next to the bed is a face of one of these beings that everybody calls the greys they're not great I don't know why they call them that but uh, this uh, tan fleshy colored face with very large eyes black eyes I didn't see a body, so I'm going to say floating uh, face about four and a half feet off the ground, maybe maybe four, four and a half feet off the ground, looking at me. And this was not a long-faced thing uh, in the in the uh, vertical sense. It was more, it was wider than it was long. And I'd never seen anything like that before. Immediately, I mean, two seconds, three seconds, three seconds tops, I was waking up in the morning. So I don't have any grand memory to tell anybody about other than I saw this face and then I was asleep, which again, then it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that I'd fall asleep while something like now, that was inside the bed. When you told me this, I asked you, are you sure you were actually awake, that you weren't in any kind of a dream state? Yeah, because my iPod fell off when I rolled over. <laughs> my iPod, I went to sleep with my iPod on, and I left the iPod sitting on my on my uh, nightstand. And when I rolled over, I, I had actually my earpiece wires were underneath my arm. And when I rolled over, I pulled the iPod off the ground. And when it, when it hit the ground, my first thought was, crap, my iPod. <laughs> I looked up and I saw this, and I was back out. So I know I wasn't asleep, plus the fact that I told Dave when I, when I initially woke up, the reason I think I woke up, uh, the more I've thought about it, uh, I have a hernia, a groin hernia that I've had all my life. And it was really bothering me uh, about a week ago because I had done some heavy lifting. And I wear a belt that essentially is like a, is not like a corset, but it, it puts pressure on that area so that my muscles have time to heal uh, between when I tear them up again <laughs> and, and the next time. But I lost the buckle for it. And the buckle kind of cinches it around your waist. And I had replaced them with safety pins. Well, in the course of being asleep with it on, one of the safety pins had come undone, and it stuck me in the hip. <laughs> so that was why I initially woke up, because this thing was sticking me in the hip. So I know I wasn't asleep for this. Um, so couple that with the iPod falling off of the dresser, I was pretty awake, and that's how I kind of know that I was awake. But, uh, you know, no grand story. It was just that there was a face there that shouldn't have been there, and uh, and I don't have an explanation for why it was so wide. I mean, it was absurdly wide, like stretched. Just take your typical Whitley-Strieber communion alien, if you want to, and just stretch it so that it's longer rather than taller. And that's pretty much what it looked like, sort of in that, in that general vicinity, at least, so people can get an idea. Mm. But... Um, Best sleep I've had in a long time. I mean, there's there's few a few hours that I was asleep after it. I mean, that's the only thing I can say about it is you know I've never been put to sleep to have you know dental work done or an operation or anything. And my wife has told me she's like you know when you get put out for anesthetic, that's the best sleep you'll ever have. And uh, it's dreamless. You know, I, I dream a lot, and uh, this was completely dreamless. I mean, uh, and I woke up. It was almost like time stopped when I woke up. Mm. I felt pretty damn good, and uh, and I remembered seeing that face, and I'm like, oh, I wonder <laughs> what that was all about, because I don't remember any, nothing horrible. I mean, it wasn't horrible, and I can't say at this point that I'm really bothered by it, which is kind of odd, because normally I'd be pretty pretty upset about something like that, but I don't remember anything, so big deal. It's it's It was scary at the time, but I don't hardly remember that fear. I don't feel that fear. I wasn't particularly fearful, because it was so quick. So it doesn't bother me that much. But like I said to David on the phone today, 
is this a result from us going up there to, to an area where I've had a lot of uh, sightings and experiences happen? Is this a repercussion or an answer from us going up there to actively search out this phenomena at that place? You know, I would say, yeah, it is. That's uh, that's what you feel about this. You that's how that I that feel about a, yeah. it. Yeah, I, I feel that we went up there looking and knocking on doors, <laughs> as it were, and, you know, but they answer in their own time. They don't, you know, and, and it's perfect because, you know, you, you weren't here, you know, and if I were to, knowing the mannerisms of at least some of the beings that, that, I dealt with over years that that were always in an experience with me, and there were some constant ones, uh, one in particular. I know that if I brought it up, I know that if it was right here in front of me and I said, why then? What? Well, you knocked on the door. All we did was answer. You knocked on the door, you know. I've, I've been told in experiences before, you know, you're a volunteer. We're volunteers too. <laughs> what the hell does that mean? I don't know. I don't know. But... I think it's a direct response from going up there to actively seek these things out. And um, uh, and I, I have said before that people on message boards I talk to, they're like, oh, you're so lucky. I wish I could see you. I feel I wish I could see you. It's like you don't have any idea what you're asking for. you know. But if you're so inclined, I would challenge you to take a week consistently and go out to an exceedingly rural area by yourself and look. <laughs> and I'll tell you, at the end of that week – you'll see something or you'll see something in the course of that week that has the potential to change your life. And I don't mean for the good <laughs> necessarily. So yeah, I mean, it's, I'm, will, I'm willing to bet that if you could uh, go back and change this so that none of these things had ever happened to you, you, you might actually choose that, right? I mean, uh, I mean, I, th- I think what happened, what has happened to me and what I, and what I asked for, because I, you know, more or less have been told that several times you asked for it. I didn't, you right. know, well, listen, yeah, so. Sir, I know we're running out of time, Jeff. I, I do want to say to our audience that I had a lot of reasons for wanting to go to Maryland and, and spend time with you and meet you. But one of the key things that I wanted to do is I wanted to um, meet you face-to-face, and I wanted to look into your eyes and know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to know if this was real, and I knew that if I if I got to meet you and I got to spend some time talking with you, mm-hmm. that I'd, I'd have a good handle on whether or not you have lived through these things you've talked about to me personally, to our audience on the show. Right. And I just want our audience to know that I came away with the impression that uh, you're not making any of this up at all, my friend. You <laughs> lived through this stuff. and I'd be, I'd be a little afraid to make anything up. <laughs> yeah, I know you have. And so I want to yeah. thank you for you know, sharing these stories with us and, and helping oh, no, us to, uh, to try to understand this. Indeed, yeah. um, uh, Jeff, we enjoy tremendously spending time with you, and well, we treasure your knowledge, your wisdom, <laughs> and the time we've all spent together. Thanks again, Jeff Ritz for joining us this week on the Paracast. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, man. No problem. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.